what I want to talk to you about is the Great Commission. One of the reasons I want to talk about that is one of the things that happens in the Messianic movement, and we have some friends that have gone there, is that people come out of the Sunday church, they slide through Messianic Judaism, and skid right on past. And one of the reasons for that, I think, and uh, I will quote C.S. Lewis, probably not accurately, is so many of us have been inoculated with a weakened strain of the gospel that we become immune to the real thing. One of the things that you have trouble with is you're witnessing to your friends is they have grown up in a Christian society. And they've grown up on Bible sound bites. And they don't have any depth, but they think they know. One of the things I do occasionally is write letters to the editor. And I will invariably get responses back misquoting scripture or quoting scripture out of context and on and on and on. So it's a real problem. And since we in the messianic community tend to enjoy studying, at least I do, we get into the word and we start studying it and we go over to rabbinic sources because there is a lot of wisdom among the rabbis. They've been doing this for a long time. They got a lot of cornflakes over there, but they got some good stuff. And what typically happens is any preacher worth his salt cares about his flock. And the rabbis are no different than any Christian preacher. So when the rabbis find Christians, messianics or whatever, proselytizing their flock, they come back and say, wait a minute, this is completely wrong. And most of them know the New Testament better than you do, certainly better than I do. And not only that, they know the Torah and the Tanakh way better than we do. So they're able to put together really convincing arguments about why this guy Jesus isn't the Messiah or wasn't the Messiah. They're very good. And oh, by the way, they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do, which is they are guarding their flock. So what typically happens is folks in the Messianic community slide into Messianic Judaism, go over and start reading the stuff from the rabbis, and they get these really good arguments as to why Yeshua isn't the Messiah. And some of them buy it. And I will suggest that one of the reasons they buy it is they have been inoculated all their lives with these Bible sound bites, especially the Bible sound bites that are supposed to be really effective against Jews. And when they find a really good argument as to why that isn't true, oh, wait a minute, huh, and off they go. And then we have a little colony in Oklahoma that's, that's fallen into that. What their disposition is is way above my pay grade. These are people who care very much about God. And these are people who have a worship relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are still my friends. I think they're wrong, but they're still my friends. And as I say, what God does about that is up to God. I don't, I don't get to make those decisions. As I say, it's way above my pay grade. The other thing that's going on in our society is a rise of what I would call neo-paganism. And again, these are people who have grown up in a, quote, Christian society, unquote, and have drifted over into basically paganism. Uh, Kay was reading a letter to the editor, what, yesterday or today? I don't remember which, talking in terms of Planned Parenthood about how all this stuff with the videos is, is complete lies, and Planned Parenthood does good stuff, 
and oh, by the way, they're doing wonderful medical research with uh, products of abortion. And I am composing a letter to the editor as we speak, and one of the things I will say is what we're dealing with here is child sacrifice. And child sacrifice has been a part of the human condition ever since there were humans. It goes clear back to biblical times. People sacrifice their children for worldly gain. Now, in Bible times, they would sacrifice their children to get good rain and good crops. And in fact, there's a passage in the Bible where they're attacking Jericho. And the king of Jericho sacrifices his son to get victory over the Israelites. So the idea of people sacrificing children for worldly gain, whatever that worldly gain happens to be, is very old. The latest incarnation of that is medical research. So what we're doing is sacrificing our children, and we are using our dead children for medical research, and that's supposed to make it okay. What I'm saying to you is that pathology is ancient, and it's a part of the human condition. And the rise of that pathology today, I will suggest to you, is a result of people not hearing and understanding the gospel properly. For example, there's two other churches in this building. One of them is Reformed Baptist, which is Calvinist. Again, very smart people, care a great deal about the Bible. I absolutely disagree with them on the theology. And, you know, when the two of us stand before God, God will sort that out, and maybe they're right, maybe I'm right, or maybe we're both wrong, and, you know, but at least down here, I disagree. So what they do is they divide the world into those who are chosen by God and elect and are saved and all the rest of you sinners who are going to hell and you can't do anything about it. That's their gospel. You are the elect. You sitting in this pew have been chosen by God. You didn't have anything to do with it. It's God's sovereign grace. You didn't have any choice getting in. You don't have any choice getting out and... Praise God that you've been chosen and too bad for all the rest of them. I mean, that's Calvinism in 25 words or less. I believe that's wrong. And people who believe that have a certain mindset. I disagree with them, but as I say, they are Bible-believing, God-worshipping, and they care about this stuff. They are not evil people. Please don't get the impression that I am saying they're evil people. They are not. It's just that I believe that they have got the wrong take on the gospel. So, I'm going to read you the passage in Mark, which we did today. Mark 16, 15. He said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. These signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. Anybody ever cast out a demon? I have. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. Some of you speak in tongues, some of you don't, and that's okay. They will pick up serpents with their hands. I haven't tried that one. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. I haven't tried that one either. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. That one I've done. So I'm, you know, batting about 60% here. But as I say, there's some of them I'm not going to tempt the Lord with. Uh, you know, I'm not going to pick up snakes. I mean, if I had to, I suppose I would, but that's not something I'm looking to do. I actually want to go to the Luke passage 
that corresponds. So in Luke 24:44, and he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Beginning in Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So it's very obvious that this gospel thing is for the whole creation, and it's for all nations. It isn't just for an elect few, and not picking on Calvinists necessarily, but I have trouble with somebody who says it's just us. Now, one of the things I've told you before, one of my favorite passages of scripture is, I think it's Isaiah 29. I should have looked it up. Anyway, it's, it's the part where it describes the process of exile, where Israel is going into exile. And what it says there is that before you go into exile, I will cover your eyes and your ears, which is the prophets and the seers, and I will close the book. I firmly believe that the reason that you have our Baptist friends who believe one way, I who believe another way, our Catholic friends who believe yet a third way, and the Mormons who believe yet another way, and the Jehovah's Witness who believe another I mean, all of these scattered things is because the books have been closed. And you have sincere, God-loving people who read the scriptures, and these are not stupid people, and these are not people who don't care, but they're dealing with a book that has been closed. It is my prayer that the books are being opened as we speak. Now, I have no doubt whatsoever in my military mind that when I stand before Yeshua, I'm going to have some stuff wrong. I'm just sure that that's going to be the case. I hope it's nothing major. And I certainly pray that it isn't anything I've let anybody else in. All right, so let's talk about the gospel. One of the things about scripture is it's ambiguous. I can tell you I have read and taught scripture and I teach it one year and I'll teach the same passage of scripture two years later and I'll get something completely different out of it. And I think that's okay. But I have an engineering mind. Not my fault. God did it to me. I have an engineering mind. And what I really want is precision and clarity. I want the scriptures to be opened up, and I want to be able to follow a chain of logic, and I want to get from A to B, and I want to be sure that I'm right, and I don't want to see another chain of logic that goes from A to C. Unfortunately, the scripture is not that way. And that's why we have all of these variations on a theme of what's the gospel. And I've told this before. I didn't come to faith until I was a mature man, probably in the 90s. Some of you have had the advantage of being with Christ all your lives. I didn't have that advantage. But the flip side of that is I didn't have any junk to get rid of. In other words, I didn't have 40 years of wacky Sunday school teachers who are sort of right, but not quite. I didn't have any of that to get rid of. I just opened the book and said, all right, what's the book say? Fine, I'll believe it. And that's an advantage 
but it's also a disadvantage. As I say, the disadvantage is I didn't know God all those years. So I, I'm not suggesting that that's a good way to do things. It's just the way I did it. I started off in the Episcopal Church, and one of the things that happened to me is I kept trying to find out from someone, what's the gospel? And everybody sort of assumed I know. And everybody sort of assumed that other people knew. And everybody sort of assumed that everybody knew because everybody talked about it all the time. But I couldn't nail anybody down and tell me what it was. And as you know, when I don't understand things, I teach. It's the fastest way to figure something out. Is if I have to teach it, I, I'm serious. I mean, that's the fastest way to figure something out. Is I'll, I'll teach it. So I started teaching Bible. And it took me a long time to finally figure out what the gospel is. And oh, by the way, it's used in different contexts. The Greek word, of course, as you know, just means good news. And so what I would like to do is take you what I think the gospel is. That I hope you'll be able to use. One of the things you'll hear roll trippingly off people's tongue is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. Well, there's a problem with that because Yeshua preached the gospel at the beginning of his ministry. Way before he was prepping his disciples that he was going to die and raise from the dead. And I'll give you an example. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Mark chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Yeshua came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is way before the shadow of the... I mean, certainly God knew what was going to happen and I suspect Yeshua knew what was going to happen but this is way before he was prepping his disciples for what was going to happen at the crucifixion. So he's talking about something besides the death, burial, and resurrection of Yeshua when he's talking about the gospel there. So you see with my engineering mind, as I go through the Bible, I say, well, wait a minute, gospel seems to be used one way here, and it's used a different way there. What is this thing? What is he teaching us? What is it he wants us to proclaim? What is this he wants us to go throughout the world to all the creation proclaiming? What is this thing? Let's go on. Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Notice that doesn't say anything about eternal salvation, does it? Not a word there. Not a word there about eternal life. Yet, that's a gospel, good news. Now, I will suggest that in order to understand that, you have to understand a little bit of history. And for those of you who have been here a while, you've been through this before. For those of you who haven't, uh, the rest of you, you know, sort of bear with me. As you all know, during the time when Yeshua was born and grew up, Israel was under Roman domination. And many of you know, some of you don't, that there was, in fact, a gospel of Caesar and that one of Caesar's official titles was the Son of God. Because what happened with the Caesars is when a Caesar died, the Senate deified him. 
And so his son, the successor then, became the son of God. That was one of his official titles. Which, by the way, is why the Jews freaked when Yeshua came in saying, I'm the son of God. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We got all these Romans here and they say that Caesar's the son of God. If you come in here saying you're the son of God, we're going to get accused of treason. Because you're going directly against the Roman deity. So that's a component of this. In other words, the gospel is intensely political. And what Yeshua does is he comes into this Roman dominion. The Mediterranean at that point in history is a Roman lake. They own everything all the way around. And he comes into that and says, I'm the son of God, and I am bringing good news. Well, Caesar is also the son of God, and he is also bringing good news. And the good news that Caesar is bringing is Pax Romana, the peace of Rome that holds sway over this entire region. You can walk on Roman roads anywhere in the Roman Empire, and Roman soldiers will generally keep you safe. This is good news. And in fact, they proclaim the gospel of Caesar. So for Yeshua to walk into this as a 30-year-old young rabbi from Galilee and say, I am bringing you good news, and I am the Son of God, that's directly at him. So that's part of the gospel. What part of the gospel is that? What is a characteristic of empire? And by the way, we're going through it right now. There's nothing new under the sun. What is a characteristic of empire? They want to substitute worship of the state for worship of God. Now, the way the Romans did it is they had 10,000 pagan gods, and you can worship any of them you want as long as you worship Caesar. Every Roman citizen was required once a year to go to some temple, didn't matter which one, I mean, you pick, pick your favorite deity, but you had to go there and you had to offer a pinch of incense to Caesar as a sacrifice as a test of loyalty. And in fact, in the later empire, you had a little book, like a passport. And when you would go to a temple and make your obligatory sacrifice to Caesar, the pagan priest there would basically snap your book and say, this guy is a loyal citizen of Rome. The Jews wouldn't do that, by the way. And, and neither would the Christians, which you know, is why we had all the problems. So the first thing is that empire demands worship. Now, I don't know whether you've been paying attention. I have, and I'm sure most of you have. The government in the United States right now is requiring things that go directly against religious values. Big court cases as to whether or not people like Hobby Lobby have to pay for abortion. The government wants you to do that. That's a direct church-state, if you will, conflict. And the state is trying to undermine the church and substitute worship of the state for worship of God. And there will be more of those things. They're, they're coming now, all sorts of things. And what that is, is empire is saying, you belong to me, you don't belong to God, your loyalty is to me, 
your loyalty is not to God. You will worship what I say you will worship, not this God that you claim to believe in. Going back to this idea of being inoculated with a weak strain of Christianity and then being immune to the real thing, lots and lots of members of the body of Messiah, because they have a wishy-washy gospel, that's not the right word, uh, a lot of wishy-washy, they're just incorrect, I believe. But because their gospel isn't, in fact, what Yeshua means the gospel to be and God means the gospel to be, they're easily shifted off their game. And so you get Bible sound bites of uh, one of the things, and I happen to be on abortion because that's what I'm thinking of right now, but it shows up in lots of areas. And you will get Christian churches who will support abortion because they have compassion for this pregnant mother. And they think that they are doing God's work. I happen to disagree with them, but I'm suggesting that they are sincere. They think they're doing God's work. And again, that's what I would call a misunderstanding or improper understanding of the gospel. And it goes back a long ways. Virtually nobody figures this out for himself to begin with. Everybody goes to somebody else and learns. I mean, that's what people do. And so if you've got errors that crept in 2,000 years ago by sincere people, and those errors have been propagated and embellished for 2,000 years, you can be way off course with the best of intentions. So I will suggest the first thing that the gospel is freedom from empire. In other words, the empire doesn't own you, God does. So that's the first thing he's preaching as part of the gospel, is the empire doesn't own you, God does. And you have a decision to make. Are you going to go with the empire, which is you know, the easy way to go, or are you going to stand with God, which is going to be difficult? After all, it got the Messiah himself crucified. He stood up against the empire, went right at him, and they killed him. I mean, that's a pretty stark example. If the Son of God himself gets killed by the empire, what chance do you have? Well, maybe not much. At least not in this world. So it may in fact be the case that you will get to follow him. Maybe not. That's up to him. But that's one of the things that may happen if you take this gospel seriously. Because you're going to run up against the forces of the empire. It's just going to happen. So let's look some more. Notice in the Luke passage that I read to you, that's Luke uh, 24, and I'll pick it up in 47. And that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. Well, there's something that's implied by that sentence. And what's implied is you should have some idea what is sinful. How can you repent of something that you don't know? Remember, I just talked about our liberal Christian friends who are, oh, yeah, abortion is just fine. I mean, because this poor woman has got, it's a real mess and she will ruin her life and I have compassion on this woman, therefore I'm going to help her through this whole process. 
and they don't believe that they are in sin. So in order for this gospel to work that is calling people to repentance and is calling people to eternal life, you have to understand what constitutes sin. Because if you don't, you can enroll your own, which is what lots and lots of denominations do. They roll their own. Gee, this doesn't sound good to me. It must be sinful. Or wait a minute, wait a minute. I know the Bible says this, but I look at this guy. He just wants love. And yeah, he isn't looking for love where I'm looking for love, but he just wants love. And I understand that. And God is all about love. So what's wrong with what he's doing? I mean, you've all heard these arguments. And what I will suggest to you is the foundation becomes... Moses. Moses is the foundation. Moses is the one who defines for us what sin is. And one of the things I'll be doing is starting on Tuesday is teaching Galatians. It's been about five years since I've done that. Went back and looked. And one of the things that Paul says is that Moses is an inferior gospel or an inferior law, doesn't he? In Galatians, absolutely does. And I'll explain that to you, but basically in a nutshell, what it means is that the Torah written on slabs of stone is inferior to the Torah written on a human heart. The words that are there never change. The new covenant is the Torah written on a human heart as opposed to on slabs of rock where it's not supposed to be. But the words of the Torah never change. And in uh, Scripture, Yeshua says, I want you to obey the gospel. Well, how do you obey good news? Do you understand the grammatical disconnect we're having here? My engineering mind picks right up on that kind of stuff. The only way that works is if the gospel is the Torah, the Word of God, the standard against which we all will be judged. And again, one of the problems with most of the body, again, I'm I'm generalizing, with a lot of the body of Messiah, is they look at that stuff and say, you don't want to even do that in law. That'll put you in bondage. No, it won't. It will give you freedom. So, two things then. One is, you belong to God, you don't belong to the empire. And then thing two is he is calling you to repent and obey the gospel. And in order to repent and obey, you need to know what it says. You need to know what the words are. You need to know what the statutes are, the the judgments, the the, uh, precept. For those of you who are doing Psalm 119 with us during a lull, there's all sorts of words there for the requirements that God has in the law. And if you don't know that, If you're just going on Bible sound bites, which a lot of people are, you can be shoved off your game. And you can wind up in a ditch somewhere and not even realize that you've got a problem. So, there's a sequence. And the sequence in Scripture happens to Israel over and over again. And it's happening to us today. What happens is, sin causes people to give up their freedom. Empire, government, if you will, comes and says, I am going to keep you safe, take care of you, 
yada, 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 whatever. And they make you a promise. And with that promise, if you accept that promise, you give up some of your freedom. And that progresses. And, oh, by the way, that's one of the things that happens to Israel. And I believe, personally, it's a function of oral Torah. But we'll go into that some other time. It says in today's Torah portion, the Song of Moses, that God takes his people out of the desert, and he feeds them, and he gives them oil, the finest of wheat. And what happens to them? They get fat. They grow fat and thick, which is to say prosperity is the most difficult test of all. I mean, when things are really miserable and you're staring up from the bottom of a hole, it's really easy to get focused on God. When things are going really well, it's very easy to fall away from God. And that's what happens to Israel over and over again. And I am suggesting to you that's what's happening in the United States right now. We have gotten fat. We have been blessed. We have got abundance. And what that does is it turns people away from God because we forget where that came from. One of the problems with government today is they keep milking the goose that lays the golden egg, and they don't realize that at some point there's no more eggs. They think that it's always going to be there because there is so much abundance. They sell themselves for security. How many of you have been fondled as you go through an airport? That's selling some of your freedom for security. And what it winds up doing is it gets more and more and more intrusive. That's the way it works. Then you believe a demagogue. Do we have a demagogue in office, maybe? So the empire starts off benign. We're going to take care of you. I've got this guy that has a plan. I'm going to fundamentally transform stuff. I am going to make it really, really better. But what happens is you descend into slavery. By the way, that's what happens to the children of Jacob. They go down to Egypt because of a famine. Pharaoh says, I'm going to take care of you, which he does for a while. And where do they wind up? In slavery. Over and over and over again. The natural cycle. At that point, people cry out to God. That's your job? Okay? Your people? You should be crying out to God at this point because we're pretty much there. And then what God does is separates his people from empire, takes them to Goshen, takes vengeance on the empire because the empire has been taking his people and appropriating them for his own. The next thing we have is the death of the firstborn. Is this all sounding familiar to you guys? So who was the firstborn that died for us? Yeshua. He is the firstborn and he died for us. People leave with great wealth. Then we take a mikvah. Baptism. Going through the Red Sea. And then the next thing is God heals us. God heals us. He writes the Torah on our heart. And then we turn around and become his army. Those clothed in white robes who follow after him. So the gospel is, God hates empire. You don't belong to them, you belong to him. 
He has paid the debt for your sins, and he is calling you to repent and follow his Torah. And at the stage that we are in in our history, I'm going to add a big parenthesis, you need to be crying out to God. Because that's the thing that is going to get us out of slavery. Please consider becoming a sponsor. You can sponsor us for as little as a dollar a month. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you.